Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to remind you all as the holiday season approaches that you can buy Conversation with Coleman's merchandise for yourself or your loved ones at colemanhughes.org. We have a hoodie, a mug, a t-shirt, and a face mask, so go check that out. Okay, my guest today is Michelle Telfer. Michelle is an Australian pediatrician and head of the gender clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. She's the lead author of the Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines for Trans Children, and she is also a former Olympic gymnast. In this episode, we talk about gender dysphoria, particularly in children and adolescents. We talk about the difference between puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and surgery, as well as the complications of all three. As I say to Michelle, the size of my podcast audience basically guarantees that someone listening is either trans themselves or the parent of a trans kid. And so I hope this episode is useful to them as well as interesting to everyone else. I'm especially concerned about the process by which it's decided that a young person should undergo irreversible medical operations. Michelle is very much on the inside of this process, and I came away pleasantly surprised by the degree of rigor at her clinic. There are two ways to mess this up. First, by making it too easy for teens and preteens to make irreversible changes to their bodies, thereby guaranteeing that some of them will forever live with regrets. And second, by making it too difficult for trans kids to make the kinds of changes that will give them a shot at happiness. That's the tightrope we have to walk on this issue, and from what I can tell, Michelle is successfully walking it. So without further ado, Michelle Telfer. All right, Michelle Telfer, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you, Coleman. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So um, I guess let's just start with your background. How did you start doing the work that you do, and how was the clinic born? Well, I'm a paediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist. So I went through medical school and then trained for paediatrics over another six years. And then I did some extra training in adolescent medicine and became a specialist in this field. With the gender service, it was an interesting start for me. I I took a new role here at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, in Australia. And at the start of this this job, um, which was a full-time role, there was a situation where there were about 15 patients in the hospital who were receiving treatment for their trans and gender diverse identity. And the endocrinologist who was looking after them had um, decided to retire. And there wasn't anyone else who was stepping forward to take over the care of these young people. And so what I did was my hand up and said, um, look, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm willing to learn and to work out something new. And, and it fit really well into adolescent medicine because these are young people with often coming in in distress and concerns about their mental health. 
and the care that we provide for them is a, a mixture between mental health support and care, but also physical medical interventions to help them affirm their gender. So for adolescent medicine physicians, this was an area that we could use our expertise. So I uh, did a lot of reading, met lots of people, and then started to see these young people and by listening to them and to listening to their stories and hearing what they needed, I was able to learn how best to do this work. Yeah, so this is a, uh, it's a charged and, and controversial topic, as you're well aware. And the reason it's at all sort of an ethically interesting topic or important topic to discuss is because we're talking about children having to make decisions about their health and medical interventions. No one really should really care so much what an adult does to their body because they're the only real stakeholder and we know the adult mind has matured enough to make certain kinds of decisions. But trans children face a, a very tricky sort of catch-22 almost like paradox where in order to have a shot at having the body they see themselves in, they need to start with medical interventions before puberty, at the very least puberty blockers. But precisely because they're that young, we can't, we have to have a, some kind of standard to allow them to make those kinds of decisions that's different than what we would require of an adult, which is really not much at all. And so I think especially anyone with kids, I don't have kids yet, but I plan to one day, parents are imagining, what do I do when my 10-year-old, 11-year-old, or, or five-year-old, for that matter, comes to me and says, mommy, I'm a boy, mommy, I'm a girl. And do you interpret that initially? Do you just wait and see? So th this is the kind of, this is the predicament that many parents are in, and all parents probably imagine themselves, can imagine themselves being in. And what I find interesting about, obviously, the, the biggest concern a parent would have is that this is just a phase. I don't want my kid to do something that's irreversible or go through any kind of medical procedure they're going to grow out of. So that's, I think, the main concern. And your clinic, really any responsible clinic, has addresses this concern pretty straight on in that there's a, a system of meetings and education that doesn't just, that weans out the kids for whom, who are not really trans as a stable identity and only applies treatment to those that are not going to regret it. So I think that's a very interesting and important feature here that I want you to walk me through. So like day one, my kid has shown, has told me that they're trans and I bring them into your clinic. What is the process like from the very beginning? Yeah, and Coleman, look, you've just touched on many of the issues that we face on a daily basis and many of the questions we get from parents too about what do I do in this situation that I find myself in. I think the key concepts before we get into the process of what we do is that when we talk to these young people, whether it's a very young child and we have referrals that come in from families where the child is as young as three years old to referrals that we get from those who are mid and late adolescents is that for them, it doesn't feel like a choice. So for these young people that in a situation where they feel their gender doesn't align with their sex that was assigned at birth, for them, it isn't a choice about do I live in this way? Do I transition or do I face the world expressing myself as I need to? It's often an absolute inner desire to do so. And, and if they're not able to express themselves in that way. If they're unable to be genuine 
about who they are and show their authentic self, it's highly, highly distressing for them. Um, so what is important for us is that we, first of all, listen to the young person and the parents. It's obviously important to consider the situation as a family and, and the environment they're living in. We listen and hear from them what they need to be happy and fulfilled and to function well as a person and as a family. So that's the first main point. And I have to say that of the hundreds, of, we've, we've seen thousands of young people through our clinic, the stories are never the same. So each person that comes in has their own story and their own set of circumstances. And there isn't a cookie cutter kind of approach to this. We have a very well-prescribed system that's multidisciplinary and involves clinicians across mental health, psychology and psychiatry, social work. We have paediatricians and endocrinologists and gynecologists. We have so many different specialists. And whilst everyone has access to whoever they need, some need input from some specialties more than others. Some people are very sure. Some people are really unsure. And some people feel a real sense of urgency that something has to be done. And others don't want anything to be done. They just want to come in and talk and try and help understand how they're feeling. So to get back to your question, Coleman, sorry, it was a very long-winded way of um, preempting it. When we receive a referral, it depends on how old the young person is to how we approach it. So for example, if someone is three or four years of age, of course, there's not going to be any intervention as such, apart from really talking to that child and watching them play and seeing them interact with their family members and discussing with their parents what they need to feel supported, whichever way it may go, whether this young person identifies as trans and, and grows up and wants to transition or whether this is something that they're expressing now that may evolve in another way. So for a three or four-year-old, it's just really we assign them a person to talk to, usually a psychologist or psychiatrist, and then they take that journey with adjustments over the years for what they may need. If someone comes in and they're uh, pre-pubertal in that peripubertal age, so somewhere between 8 and 13, then we take a different approach because it's at that time that they may be expressing that they'd really like to start on puberty blockers. They may have really intense sense of anxiety, this sort of anticipatory anxiety about what will happen when they go through puberty, or they might be on the cusp of puberty or starting puberty where they're experiencing changes of their body where they become extraordinarily distressed. It's around age 11 and 12 that we see a big jump in, in referrals because often it's when they start to experience their body changing. They really experience that sense of sometimes panic or distress that it doesn't feel right for them and a sense that they can't stop it. It's, it's progressing, it's outside of their control and they really, really don't want it to happen. So around that age, around that peripubertal age, they are allocated a mental health clinician who they see initially for three or four sessions and then their, a paediatrician joins them for the fourth session where we talk about medical options depending on where things are at. And to be honest, for the, for the vast majority, it takes longer than that to work through what is best for that young person. And of course, there are not just assessments in terms of talking and, and working out how that young person feels and where they want to go in the future. But we also worry about the medical side of things. So we do blood tests, we check bone density. 
We talk to them about fertility preservation, the risks and benefits of doing interventions from that perspective and happy to go into detail with that, but that's a whole other conversation. And then there are the older kids, so those that present when they're past puberty, where puberty blockers aren't really indicated because they're not going to have much impact on the physical side of things. But these young people are just as distressed often about how they feel about themselves and have come to the realisation about their trans identity a bit later on. And whilst they are distressed and want to transition, they're older and more independent in their living and in their decision-making. And whilst we still involve parents at that age, it becomes much more of, a, of an interaction between the doctor and the young person. I guess spend more time with the adolescent just solely on their own and try and work through what's going to be best for them. So I think all up, when you look at the amount of time we spend with young people and families, it depends on their age, it depends on their circumstances, depends on their sense of urgency and their mental health status, and we adjust and individualise to make sure that we get the best outcomes we can. And is everyone, are all the patients at your clinic 18 or, or below? When they are referred to us, we accept referrals only if someone is under 17. There's under 17, an, okay. Yeah, there's, a, there's an adult service that takes the referrals when they're older than that. Unfortunately for us, we've had this extraordinarily large rise in referrals over the last 10 years, which is consistent with gender services across Australia, but also across the Western world. We haven't been able to keep up with the demand with our current resources. We're very fortunate here in Melbourne that we've got a very supportive government who's just given us an increase in in our funding uh, and we're just about to expand the services, not just at the Royal Children's Hospital, but with our our partner hospitals and health services. And what we'll be doing is is taking this multidisciplinary approach and, and expanding out across Victoria for the adolescent age group. But what we're finding is that with this increasing demand, there has developed long waiting lists. And um, unfortunately, whilst we've got this sort of complex, collaborative, multidisciplinary approach, many young people are spending a long period of time waiting to get into those services. And whilst we're linking them in with community-based services for mental health to try and make sure that they're safe from a self-harm perspective and to start working through some of the concerns they may have. With COVID pandemic, uh, there's been a huge demand on mental health services across the country. Sure, it's actually an international phenomenon and um, it's increasingly difficult to access that care. All right. So I do want to get into the the specifics here. And I think just uh, it's just worth saying that audience of my podcast is now large enough. I could confidently say somebody listening to this episode is either in this situation themselves or has a child who is precisely in this situation. So that's just always good to keep in mind. So let's just go over the difference between puberty blockers and hormone therapy. Puberty blockers are medications that they're otherwise known as gonadotrophin releasing hormone analogs. And they what they do is act on the high thalamus and the pituitary gland and block the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So it's a very medical explanation um, for essentially blocking the pathway that allows the body to produce estrogen or testosterone. And regardless of whether you're assigned female or male at birth, these medications act in the same way on the brain and ultimately stop the testes from producing testosterone 
or the ovaries from producing estrogen. And when a young person is started on puberty blockers, usually given uh, by intramuscular injection or a subcutaneous implant, depending on the type of medic- the type of blocker you're using, what it does is essentially suppress these hormones, which allows the body to continue to, to grow and develop in all other ways. They grow taller, they put on weight, they continue to do well or, or at the same level, I should say, academically and cognitively, but they don't develop the secondary sexual characteristics of for those assigned female at birth. They don't develop breasts, for example. They don't start to menstruate. For those who are assigned male at birth, being on puberty blockers stops their voice deepening, stops them growing facial hair and stops the changes associated with masculinization of the jaw and face. And they continue to, as I said, to grow up without those physical changes in the body. And what we see with puberty blockers, very often when a young person has come into us expressing a huge amount of distress with development of their secondary sexual characteristics, that starting on the blockers almost instantaneously reduces that anxiety and allows them to function in a way that uh, enables them to attend school, for example, and concentrate on learning and enables them to function in the home environment without being so distressed. They're happier and, yeah, they're happier, their mental health is better. With hormone treatment, in terms of gender-affirming hormone treatment, we use testosterone for those who have a male gender identity and testosterone induces masculinization. So for that, you see a deepening of the voice, often within six to eight weeks initially, and other changes that progress over a number of years. So changes in jaw and facial structure, being more masculine, facial hair, body hair, and also sort of increase in muscularity of the body and changes in fat redistribution. So instead of putting fat, for example, on the hips and bottom, as one would being assigned female at birth with testosterone, you tend to have a narrowing of the fat in those areas. And if they do put on weight, it tends to on the abdomen. So you get a masculine overall appearance over, over many years. And with estrogen, what we see is the opposite. We have the feminization of the body with breast growth, widening of hips through fat redistribution, softening of the skin, softening of the facial features, enabling them to, I guess, express themselves in a way that they feel fits with their inner sense of who they are. And with the physical changes, what we tend to see for the vast majority is an improvement in their mood, in their levels of anxiety, and their ability to do well in life uh, more broadly. So a key difference between these two things is that puberty blockers are, if you decide to stop taking them, the puberty you were going to have naturally is just going to kick back in. Yeah, that's right. So puberty so blockers... It's more, it's more of a puberty delayer, really, than a, yeah, than a blocker. Yeah, we, we refer to it medically as puberty suppression because it does, it suppresses puberty for a period of time. And if you do choose to come off puberty blockers, then you're right, your endogenous hormones kick in again and the puberty that you would have experienced before happens a bit later on. And this is a really important point common because with puberty blockers, sometimes what we see are young people who come in extraordinarily distressed and extraordinarily anxious to the point that they can't speak about what's happening 
to their body and to them. And their function in terms of their environment at home and at school is so poor because of this distress and anxiety that often we offer to start the puberty blockers to allow them space to, and the time, space and the time to, to talk without a sense of urgency over a decision. I can give you an example. I look after a young person who came to see us when he was about 10 and he was really unsure of his gender and he had a number of very feminine interests. He was very feminine in his expression generally, but he said, I really, I'm not sure that I'm female. I I think I'm male. I'm not sure. I really don't know. Maybe I'm non-binary. Maybe I'm not exclusively male or female. And he also had such severe anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder that his whole day was made up of rituals to try and control this anxiety. So we offered to put him on puberty blockers just so that he didn't have to make a decision so urgently. And it was really interesting to watch the anxiety. Really, it took time, but it settled down. He stopped spending much of the day doing hand washing and checking things, which were part of his OCD uh, symptomatology. And what we saw over time was him become much more comfortable with himself. And he, in the end, after about three years said, I do feel very comfortable now that I'm male. I'm a very feminine male, not yet aware of potential kind of sexuality and, and identification in other ways. But he said, for my gender, I now feel much more comfortable and I'm going to come off the blockers and go through male puberty. And um, this young person has gone from not being able to function at school to now I heard actually just a couple of weeks ago that he's got a scholarship into year 11, which is our last two years of high school, year 11 and 12. And he's been able to, yeah, to do so well academically. He's Mm. moved schools into somewhere where he's got a scholarship. So puberty blockers can work for trans people in suppressing puberty and allow a transition that enables them to express themselves in their trans identity. But they can also help young people by providing space to work through some of their concerns and to do so, I think, in a really humane way where they feel a sense of control that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, this brings up an interesting point, which uh, the the more I've had conversations with people who either are trans and have transitioned or are cisgender but had struggled with some degree of gender dysphoria in their youth, I've come more and more to see gender dysphoria as a a spectrum or as something that comes in degrees where you have some kids from the moment they can speak are sure and just completely stable in the sense that they are assigned the wrong gender and they sound the same way about it when they're two years old as they do when they're 15. And and then you have people that just have a, a slight dose on the other end of the spectrum, a slight dose of discomfort with their gender that isn't ever going to materialize into anything worth intervening on. And then you have everything in between. And so I think part of the reason this conversation has been as sometimes um, needlessly sort of controversial as it is, is because we talk about gender dysphoria as something you just either have or you don't, which I think obscures really the messy reality of things for people. Yeah. Oh, and I completely agree with you that this is a spectrum. And I think we started talking about how everyone has their own story. And I don't think I'll ever come across two young people and who are the same. And there is the classic narrative of 
the trans person who presents at age three who, as soon as they could speak, talked about their gender in a way that clearly, clearly identifies them as having a trans identity. And yet we have young people who first come to a realisation in puberty or first start to really think about their gender identity as adults. And you hear of people transitioning. We certainly um, in Australia have stories of people transitioning at 70 and 80 years of age that have experienced gender dysphoria and their own sense of who they are over time may have needed their circumstances to be such that it did feel safe for them to transition. But there are people who are at each end of the spectrum and then, as you say, everyone in the middle. And that nuance gets lost, I think, when the discussion about trans people is politicised and when the controversy comes. It's often not controversy which is looking at nuance. It's the controversy of good and bad, black and white, people try and reduce it to that sort of debate. And I think that's where it gets dangerous for trans people. Yeah. So it's just one more question about puberty blockers. I understand the only side effect that is long-term is a decrease in bone density. So how serious is that? Yeah, good question. So puberty blockers or puberty suppression, the medications don't directly affect bone. So it's not as if there's a a side effect where that medication is interacting with the osteocytes, for example, the, mm-hmm. the cells in the bone. But what we know in adolescence is that estrogen and testosterone have a really important function increasing bone density. And that's why, for example, if someone has another condition like anorexia nervosa, let's just throw that in there, where their estrogen is very, very low their bone density is is affected as well. So it's a similar kind of mechanism where the absence of the hormones in the body really has an impact if that absence is is extended or long-term. So what we find with puberty blockers is for those who go into puberty really early, so these are often uh, trans boys. We know that those who are assigned female at birth start puberty approximately two years earlier than those who are assigned male at birth. So they'll often be started on puberty blockers from as young as sort of 10 or 11. And if they're not commenced on gender-affirming hormones or if their blockers aren't stopped so their endogenous hormones can, can enter back into their system, that prolonged period of time of absence of hormones in their body will affect their bone density. And the effect on bone density is, again, different for each individual. So anyone that we're starting on puberty blockers, we measure bone density. Genetics plays a really big role in bone density. So does weight and exercise levels and there are many other factors. And so for some, if their bone density is within the normal range or above average when we start puberty blockers and they're not on puberty blockers for very long, then the impact on bone density is actually fairly minimal. And when they do start gender-affirming hormones, what we see is, is a good catch-up in bone density And the studies that have been done show that there is significant catch-up when we start gender-affirming hormones and the bone density improves significantly. But the studies aren't yet extended out longitudinally to see what happens um, in the much longer term where we suspect that bone density will continue to accrue and improve over time. So most of the bone density studies look at outcomes of two years after they've started hormone treatment. And we think it's necessary to look at what the bone density is doing five and 10 years 
after starting hormones to see if that catch-up continues. With those who are assigned male at birth, who uh, go into puberty later and have a much shorter period of time between starting the puberty blockers and commencing on estrogen, the impact on bone density. Why is that? I'm curious. Sorry, why did they go into puberty later? Oh, no, no. You said there's a... Did I, maybe I misheard you, but there's a, you said there's a usually shorter period of time between when they start puberty blockers and when they start taking estrogen relative to. Yes, just because the, the age that we tend to look at starting them on gender affirming hormones is around the age that they become competent to make their own decision making. Right. So for those assigned male and female at birth, it's around the same age. Gotcha. Uh, they tend to become competent around sort of 14 to 16 in their capacity to understand long-term risks and benefits and so forth. So mm-hmm. just they're all starting same time, but with the affirming hormones, but the blockers start at different times. So Got it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. So in the cases where people do just choose to come off the puberty blockers and have the puberty they would have had, is the fact that they went on those blockers changed the puberty, like, like the length of it, or it's, it's just what it would have been? Just delayed? Yeah. Our experience is that it's just delayed and um, there haven't been any effects for the young people that we've looked after where that's happened. We don't have a huge number, to be honest, because the vast majority that start on puberty blockers continue to to be sure about what they want to do longer term and progress to gender-affirming hormones. But for the small number who have come off blockers, they've done really well. And am I, am I right to somehow you know, sort of equate this to the experience of like an, an extreme child athlete whose puberty gets delayed just by the amount of exercise they're doing. But then when it comes, it it comes the same way. Yeah, pretty much. That's a fairly good analogy. If you look at, yeah, gymnasts, uh, ballet dancers often have low weight and, and really high intensive exercise that can suppress their production of hormones. Mm-hmm. I think partly the exercise with the, especially the weight bearing exercise of those sports helps with bone density. Yes, lots of different factors there, but they do go through normal puberty and go on to function well in society. Okay, so now let's talk about hormone therapy. As I said, this is the the people who make it to this stage have decided they're going to make changes to their body that are very difficult to reverse, if some of which are impossible to reverse. And so this is a it requires a much higher level of responsibility to administer these than to administer puberty blockers. So in what way does it does it differ to say take testosterone for instance than to produce it naturally? Is there any significant difference? Is there are there is there anything worth worrying about given the fact that you're taking it exogenously? That is a good question. I think when you're taking it exogenously, it there are I guess there's a, a level of oversight that is required to keep things safe. So for example, when you're uh, taking the testosterone via injection or you can take it by gel, just on your skin, lots of different ways, um, we do measure testosterone levels in the blood to make sure that those levels aren't too high or for some people too low. And it's just something that you don't need to worry about when you have endogenous testosterone. And we know that there are risks of having too much testosterone in your system in terms of, for example, your, your hemoglobin, your hematocrit can increase and that can increase the, the risk of clot in your blood. Um, if you think about often, if we go back to talking about athletes and some of the, the athletes who take performance enhancing drugs, 
one of those performance enhancing drugs is testosterone like medications. And that increases your hematocrit so that your body can carry more oxygen. That's really good for cyclists, for example, totally banned. And I'm not recommending anyone do it, but it might help you cycling, but it also increases your risk of having blood clots, which can lead to heart attacks and strokes. So there are certain things about taking endogenous hormones that require uh, oversight or not oversight so much, but monitoring. Same with estrogen, as we know, with cisgender females taking the pill, whether that's for contraception or menstrual management, there are risks there in terms of blood clots as well. Different mechanism to testosterone, but blood clots um, are concerned. And it's the same for trans women who are taking estrogen as for cis women taking estrogen. We need to make sure that it's done in a way that's safe and taking into account, of course, their genetics and their family history and making sure that um, we're not increasing the risk unnecessarily by doing things in a a way that could cause that. So for most of your patients, once they're on either testosterone or estrogen, is there just a a sort of um, constant dosage that they're on? Uh, is there, does the dosage change over time? How does that work? So it depends on the age which they're starting these hormone treatments. So if you've had someone who started on puberty suppression fairly early and haven't gone through their own endogenous puberty, we would start the dose at a much lower level and very slowly increase that dose in increments so that we're mimicking and endogenous puberty in terms of that uh, progression. And yet if we had someone who, say, presented to us at 16 or 17 who had already gone through a puberty, if we were to start hormone therapy at that older age, we'd be more likely to increase the dose much more quickly. It tend to be of bigger size and the effect of those hormones often require higher dosages because of getting towards adult physiology. So we really do take an individual approach, but we do in all cases grade up the dose until we're at a level that um, that person is getting the effect that they need physically and also the effect that they need from a mental health perspective. So we balance out those risks and benefits. And then once they're at a level, often there are prescribed maximum doses once we get close to that or, or at that level, then it tends to stay fairly constant from therein. What's really interesting though, Coleman, is that over time what we're seeing is further individualization of hormone treatments. So, and this has really come from demand from the community and listening to what the trans community are telling us in terms of what they need. And some people are opting to have hormone treatment for a certain period of time and then to deliberately and in a planned way stop taking it. So I can give you an example of this. So someone who, for example, is assigned female at birth and has a non-binary gender identity, they might come to us and and say, I have a non-binary gender identity and I want to masculinize to a certain extent, but I don't want to look sort of in a way that I'm a man. I want to look not exclusively male or female. I want my body to reflect my non-binary gender identity. And we have the same process. You know, we meet with them and with their family and we talk through all of the the short-term, medium-term, long-term concerns and plans and dreams and, and wishes. And we talk about all the risks and benefits of the different treatments. And some of these young people are opting to have testosterone for a certain amount of time, often about six months. They want to have a deeper voice 
and they might want also to have some masculinization of their face, but for them, they get to a point of masculinization where they feel that's right for them. And then they stop taking testosterone so that they have some masculinization, but not too much for how they feel they are as a person. And of course, once you stop the testosterone, those irreversible changes remain for that person, but their endogenous estrogen then is present in the body and is there to assist with just the general physiology that uh, requires a hormone in the body. So the bone density and their bone health remains really good. For some, they may actually want to have menstruation continue. Others want us to use other things to stop that. But there are different ways people can use hormone treatments in a safe way to express who they are and to fit with how they see themselves in the world. So we're seeing more and more young people coming to us with that idea that they don't want the full gamut of, of puberty blockers, gender-affirming hormones, and then surgical treatments, that they might want a little bit of that. Mm. And a number of, of young people come to us and say, actually, we don't want hormone treatment at all. We want to talk through it. We want to understand who we are as a person. Some young people say, I'm, I want you to help my family understand how I feel. And they may plan to have some surgery in the future, often chest reconstruction surgery to, to change the shape of their chest to be more a non-binary shape rather than, say, a female shape. But they don't have hormone treatment. They never plan to. And they want to live their life with that aspect that's addressed and, and nothing else. So it's just so individual. And is everything that's happening here, does it all require parental approval? And in the cases where, are there cases where people's parents come in and you can see that they're totally uncomfortable with what's going on and there's some kind of sort of conflict that you have to help the family through? Yeah, look, I think a lot of the time we spend as clinicians in the gender services spent with parents and helping them to understand uh, where the young person is at. We know that someone's identity is not changeable. We, we all have our own identity and that changes over time from an internal kind of inherent perspective, but no one can change another person's identity. And when we think about practices in the past for, for people undertook things like conversion therapy or um, various mechanisms to try and to change one's gender identity, we know that that has never worked just like you can't make someone trans if they're not trans, you can't make someone cisgender if they're not cisgender. And with families coming into the gender service, often there's a, a sense of, there's often a sense of distress. They worry about their young person, even if they're very supportive of the young person and, and understand their trans experience, they might really worry about how the world is going to respond to them because Many parents are very aware of the stigma, the discrimination, the social exclusion, rejection, abuse, harassment that occurs in trans people. And parents often come in and say, I'm worried about my child and how they are going to cope in a world that treats trans people in this way. And yet other parents come in and want us to, to fix things in a certain way where not something that needs to be fixed because the young person is, is who they are and, and we have to try and spend time and provide education around helping them to understand their child's experience, but 
to come to a situation where the family have a shared experience about the child and or the young person. And that can take a very long period of time, but it's so important because the primary prognostic factor when it comes to outcomes for trans youth, the support of those around them, and families are number one. And parents will often come to us and say, it's a big shock to me. I had no idea that this has come out of the blue. And what you hear when you talk to that young person is that they've been thinking about this sometimes for years and they might have told some friends or they might have been using avatars online that are consistent with their gender identity, but they've been afraid to talk to their parents because they've been afraid they'll be rejected by the people that they love the most. So often it takes that time to build up the courage to come out to their parents and their siblings. And that's where we as doctors and clinicians can assist in helping that communication and assisting people to understand. In terms of your your question about parental involvement in decision-making, for all of those reasons, we always involve parents in decision-making. But sometimes there are situations where parents are very fixed in their view and may be absolutely certain that that they will never support their young person to live in their trans identity or express their gender as as trans. And in those situations, it's very, very difficult for us because we see the harm that can be done with doing nothing, that doing nothing is not a neutral option because doing nothing denies a young person the care they need. And sometimes those consequences can be fatal. There's very good research which has been replicated In a number of studies in Australia in recent years, the Trans Pathways study was done in 2017, looking at a large number of young people across the whole of Australia in that age of sort of 14 to 25. And of that group, 80% had self-harmed at some stage and 48% had attempted suicide. And we've got similar data from a recent study that's been done in 2021 uh, called Writing Themselves in Four very, very high risk of self-harm and suicide. So when you have a young person who comes in with parents who are denying them treatment and where that young person can't see a future for themselves uh, living in their authentic self, they have very high risk. And occasionally we step in and, and advocate for that young person to access the care they need, which can involve the legal system. And I'm not sure if you want to go into it, um, but in Australia we have a pretty complicated history around regulation of hormone treatment, which has involved the Family Court of Australia. In 2004, there was a case of a trans boy who presented to our hospital, actually. He presented to the Royal Children's Hospital after being abandoned by his family and because he was trans. And he was very suicidal. He knew exactly what he needed and he was um, specifically asking to to transition medically and surgically and he was only 12. And this is at a time where Australia didn't, um, we didn't have a history of intervening, providing medical care for trans people. And it was the doctors in hospital here at the time who went international with their with their research into, into what was best for this young person. And the UK in the US and um, predominantly actually in the Netherlands, looking at uh, Europe, they recommended the pathway down puberty suppression and and gender-affirming hormone treatment for this young person. But because this boy was living in the care of the state, he was in foster care at the time, 
He didn't have anyone who could provide consent for him and he wasn't old enough to provide his own consent. So it went to court. The court was given the responsibility of making that medical decision for him, for treatment that was considered novel in Australia back at that time, 17 years ago. And that decision in the court was to allow this boy to start puberty blockers and to start hormone treatment. And eventually, actually, the court also approved uh, top surgery for him, chest reconstruction surgery, because his puberty blockers were starting a little bit later than it had some onset of puberty. But in the judgment from that case, it's known as Realix, the judge made a comment that all young people needed to have court approval for hormone treatment because it was considered, at that time, it was, it was considered a treatment that required that level of, of oversight. So something and I, more, more than parental consent. Oh, more than parental consent. Yes. So from, yeah, so from 2004 until 2017, so a very long period of time in Australia, what we had was a situation where even if the young person was consenting to hormone treatment and they knew it was in their best interest, even if the doctors looking after them felt the same way, and if both parents also agreed that it was the right thing, they were still required to, to go to court. And this was an extraordinary I would see it as a, as a breach of their human rights, that we know that these young people are needing this treatment. It's potentially life-saving treatment. It's therapeutic. It helps their lives so much. And yet there were delays. There was pathologization within the court process. There was a lot of extra distress that was totally unnecessary. And there have been a series of court cases to try and overcome this hurdle with the, with the court involvement that have been mostly successful. And there was a big case known as Ray Jamie that provided the first jump for puberty blockers to come out of the system. And then Ray Kelvin that I was involved in and, and the Royal Children's Hospital intervened with the Federal Government of Australia and the Australian Human Rights Commission. We all intervened in this case and um, managed to overturn this law, which was a really significant step in Australia for trans rights. We've had a little minor step backwards with a recent case with a single judge that happened in 2020. And the situation at the moment is that we can prescribe puberty suppression and gender affirming hormone treatment with the consent of both parents. But should uh, one parent object or not provide consent, then we still need to go through a court process. And what's interesting, Coleman, is that in the 17 years that we've had this involvement of the court, there's been at least 90 cases, probably now about 100 cases that have gone through the court, and not once has the court denied a young person uh, gender-affirming treatment. Interesting. Um, yeah, and of course no one goes to court unless they're very much sure mm. and determined that it's right for them. It's going through court process is stressful and, and takes a lot of courage and, and strength but not once has a judge said, no, I'm sorry, you, you can't have it every single case. So it's, it has felt like an unnecessary burden on the system, um, I have to say. And we've seen, these, we've seen similar kind of moves in the UK recently with a case that was later overturned on appeal. And also in the US, there are a number of states now who are trying to legislate to restrict treatment for trans young people. And it's interesting having gone through this process in Australia and coming out the other side with a better situation. I look to the US and, and worry about the outcome for these young people who are going to be denied treatment 
or have treatment delayed until adulthood because I know that the cost of doing so is so great. So what would you say to someone who is in the position on one side of the just gender dysphoria spectrum where they're just very certain and have been since they can remember that they were assigned the wrong gender and yet they know that their parents either for religious, political or other reasons are totally unpersuadable. What do you say to such a person? Mm, That's a difficult one. I would show my sense of empathy for how difficult it is for them as a starting point. I think acknowledging that situation is really awful and incredibly distressing. Just voicing that is helpful from that very first moment and then trying to work through ways that they can, if their parents are absolutely immovable on this, it's really about supporting that young person to survive and to to get through to a stage where legally they can make their own decisions about this and um, and to do so independently once they reach adulthood. But it's I can't imagine actually how distressing that would be to have a parent not acknowledge who you are as their child. And I think it comes to the heart of the need for children and young people to feel unconditional love. I think I'm a parent, I've got two kids and I can't imagine being in that situation where anything would get in the way of that. So I I think it really is probably one of the most challenging situations that we see because it's so distressing. It's distressing for the clinicians looking after these young people. So if you magnify that a million times, that's we we understand how that young person must be feeling too. So um, going back a little bit to more of the sort of specifics. So if you get you know, puberty blockers and then hormone therapy, what are the effects on one's ability to have biological children? So it depends on your sex assigned at birth. If you are born an assigned female at birth, then testosterone treatment probably has some effect on reducing your fertility. But over time, we're realizing that it has less effect than we thought it did. And whilst we provide lots of counseling around fertility preservation, we've started to do a lot more counseling around contraception for the trans boys because there has been this sense in the past that testosterone, because it can induce amenorrhea or stopping people's periods that they couldn't get pregnant if they were taking testosterone. And in Australia, we have Medicare data that on your Medicare card, you can change your gender to match your gender identity, or you can change your sex to match your gender identity. So it's a it's a situation where trans men are represented in Medicare as, as men. And we can look at Medicare data and see just how many men are accessing termination services, birthing services, Next door to our hospital is the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne and they services for trans men who are giving birth or who are or terminating pregnancies. Well, actually, I don't know if they do it there, but they, you, they do have termination services in Victoria where trans men are experiencing unwanted pregnancies. And this gives us you know, an indication that actually fertility is not as affected as what might have been felt in the past. And what we do also see now a larger number of trans men who are planning pregnancies with their partner and whether they're using, you know, sperm from what whatever means, whether it's IVF or from their partner, we're seeing more and more trans men 
obviously coming off testosterone because you can't be on testosterone and um, have normal development of the fetus. So they're provided with advice about stopping testosterone, conceiving, and then going through a regular pregnancy and delivering the baby and potentially going back on testosterone after they've delivered the baby, depending on what they want to do in terms of feeding and so forth. But there are a number of Australian men who have gone online and and documented their pregnancy journeys. Um, We're aware of someone who's had three children coming on and off testosterone over time to have those children, very normal, healthy children at that. So for the trans men, there are lots of options. And as I said, we counsel about fertility as much as we counsel about contraception, making sure we don't have unwanted pregnancies. For the trans women, it's a bit of a different story because we know that estrogen affects spermatogenesis and many trans women may also go on to have surgery where their testes are removed later on. So before we start any treatment, whether it's puberty suppression or gender affirming hormone treatment, we have quite detailed fertility preservation discussions. And it really depends on the age of that young person, how we go about that discussion and what can be offered. So for example, if you have someone who comes to us and they're 15 or 16, and they're identifying as female and they want to start on estrogen, they can, uh, some of them, are very happy to produce a sperm sample which they can store that sperm for 20, 30 years and should they want children down the track, they can utilise that through IVF services, for example. So we encourage them if they do want to preserve their fertility uh, to do so through what we call cryopreservation of their sperm. For those who come to us who are much younger, so for example, if we had someone who was presenting at age nine or 10, who was going to go on to puberty blockers before they have gone through their endogenous puberty. Usually what happens is that unfortunately, the time that you start producing mature sperm is also the time that your voice deepens, which is usually the greatest fear. And they're wanting to start puberty suppression to avoid that voice deepening. So what we do in that situation is we talk through the options of waiting to start puberty suppression a bit later Usually they choose not to do that because they don't want their voice deepening. So we can start them on puberty suppression. But what we offer at that time is is a testicular biopsy. This isn't offered in many different places, but here at the Royal Children's, we're very fortunate to have a general surgical team and a team with the fertility preservation system so that what we can do is a testicular biopsy, take that testicular tissue. Sometimes if it's late enough, they might have sperm within that tissue we can neutralize but if there are no sperm there we can freeze that testicular tissue and preserve it as well for the future and whilst this is entirely it's under a research protocol and it's entirely experimental what we know is with technology over time it might be a way that we could allow that young person to have biological children down the track um that's amazing yeah so where we're at at the moment is that um, many young children or and their parents choose not to have that procedure because obviously we need a general anaesthetic and they go mm-hmm. through theatre and and um, then we have to freeze that tissue and, and store it for a long period of time and that can be confronting in itself and they choose not to do that. But for others, even if the chance that that might be successful is extraordinarily small, for them from a psychological perspective, it's been important to maximise their options as much as they can and they feel that it's helpful for them in that sense. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We, as time goes on, there's, I think, snippets of, of information that suggests that oestrogen doesn't necessarily make someone infertile. That was the assumption initially. There are reports that there is preservation despite, some preservation despite oestrogen. But I think always when we're counselling young people on the risks and benefits of treatment, we have to present it in a realistic way and say, look, it could mean infertility and the options for this may be very limited in the future. But what's interesting, Coleman, is that along with that discussion we had initially about how transitioning is often not a choice, that these young people feel so strongly about who they are and who they need to be, that fertility is just one factor in so many different factors that think about when they're transitioning. And a couple of people have said to me in the past when they've been talking about fertility and and talking about the counselling that we provide about their long-term options is that we come from quite a heteronormative position where we think about families and children as something that may be kind of universally desired. But in the LGBTIQ plus community, various factors have different weight. And for some of us, I think what we've learned is that, again, we just really need to listen to the young person about what they want, what they need, and to prioritise things individually for that young person and taking into account their parents' wishes as well. Well, this is a this is a tricky one because I can very easily imagine a 12-year-old that knows that they're in the wrong body and, and is right about that. But if I just think of all of my cisgender friends who I, you know, I, I'm sometimes the odd person out in that I've known that I want to have children since I was 18 or 19. And that's been a stable desire of mine. But, you know, most people I know are just at my age of 25, sort of on the fence. And I think half of them are going to go one way and half of them are going to go the other. And it's, it's one of these decisions that really can come on like a light switch when you're 30. You know, like for, for me, it came on like a light switch when my mother died is when I realized from total neutrality, not thinking about it, that I did want to have kids. And so it was like a, a life event like that can, you know, and, and this is something it's actually probably very tough for a young person to, in some ways, tougher than your gender identity to, to know what you're going to want 20 years on. You know, if, if there's some crazy almost sci-fi way you could you could preserve the ability that would be a hugely valuable just tech solution to this problem but but as you say you know if it's if you're an adolescent or a child and it's a matter of survival essentially it's a matter of I can't bear to live like this then that's when these trade-offs you know the trade-off is sort of irrelevant if you're not alive to to make it there so it's um I suppose it's it's one of these situations where the first directive is to make sure a person survives through adolescence and to deal with all of the complications that may or may not result after you've you've taken care of number one. I totally agree with you, Common, and, and um, that's where it takes us as clinicians, as, as doctors, to ensure that we've provided as many options as we can and to it's often the parents who are I guess most willing to embark on procedures that have no guarantees about fertility that provide potential chance for the future and it's they're often very interesting discussions because it is hard for a 12 year old I mean as as you say um who's who's thinking about kids when they're 12 but it is 
It's a matter of weighing up the nuance and providing opportunity as much as you can without doing the harm that can come from enforcing views on families. So just one or two more topics here before I before I let you go. So let's talk about the the phenomenon of, of detransitioning, which refers to when someone gets hormone therapy or surgery and then later regrets it and wants to wants to reverse it. So in preparation for this, I, I just looked at some of the studies on this and you find credible studies saying that as little as, you know, less than 1% of people ever regret and want to detransition. And I see other studies that give numbers like eight or 9%. So what is your experience? What, what's your direct experience with phenomenon in people? So we have similar rates of detrans. I mean, it's hard for us to, to contemplate the long term and, and because we deal with a pediatric service. So in terms of looking at detransition in the future, there are some questions around, you know, how far, how far do we look uh, beyond our service to work out those numbers? Embarked on a longitudinal cohort study known as Trans20, where we've recruited 630 young trans people and their families. And we're following them hopefully for 20 years, hence the ambitious, the name of our study, Trans20, is, is wanting to look 20 years into the future. And that study was started in 2017 with a pilot and then commenced um, in its current form in 2018. So we're, we're only a short way into the future with that. But in terms of our, the rates of regret um, that we're seeing, it is less than 1% um, in our cohort. And it's consistent with the studies. I'm not sure if you came across the one uh, that was done from the Amsterdam cohort, which looked at the people that went through their trans services from 1975 to 2015. So they had more than 6,000 people from adolescence through to late adulthood. And their detransition rate was, or regret rate, I should say, was 0.3 to 0.6%. So depending on birth assigned sex, a very low percentage. And what was also really interesting with this study was that of those people that experienced regret, so even at that really low level, half of them expressed regret from the social impact of their transition. So they didn't regret the treatment because their gender identity changed down the track. What they did was regret the impact that that transition had on their life, whether it was rejection from their family, whether it was the fact they lost their job or they couldn't get employment. And they, yeah, they they experienced regret in that sense. There's another interesting study that was released this year by someone called Jack Turbin. Uh, He's from the US. I'm not sure if he came across that study, but he looked at at people who detransition in a cohort of, I think they started out with 27,000 trans people and looked at those who detransition and then retransition. So we also have to think about when we look at regret, especially with social regret, that we recognise that regret comes from multiple factors. And in uh, Turbin's work, what he found was that of those who de- detransitioned and retransitioned, that 80, I think it was 87% of the people that were included in the study in, in these circumstances talked about this, the external factors around their detransition and retransition. Again, family rejection, unemployment, or discrimination in the workplace or other environments. And 
I think the issue of detransition and regret is really complicated because every story is different and some of the factors around regret can be subtle, can be invisible in terms of the support that that person might be getting. When we have these discussions about about regret and detransition, there's often a lot of anxiety. I totally understand that. And with every young person that comes to see us, it's the one thing that we really strongly consider in our assessments over time is, is this going to be the right thing for this person? Are they going to benefit from this in the long term? Or are they going to look back and think, I should have done it differently? So we keep that in mind the whole time. And when we talk about risk benefit, of course, there is always a risk of regret or a risk of detransition. But if we withhold treatment because we are worried about regret or detransition, then we deny 99% of people who will benefit from hormone treatment, that treatment, which can be life-saving. I had a discussion with someone the other day. It was actually in terms of one of my friends who's a surgeon, and we were talking about regret and detransition. And I, I certainly don't want to diminish the trans experience with talking about a surgical procedure. They're totally apples and oranges. But it did bring a point where we can kind of consider, for an example, something like elective joint replacements. And if you've got pain in your hip and you need a new hip, there might be a 1% risk that you might get an infection in your hip or you might die from sepsis or have a complication from the anesthetic or what have you. But you don't stop doing hip replacements because of that 1%. You don't deny the 99% of people who will benefit in terms of removal of their pain in the longer term, the operation. But when we talk about trans treatment There's this emotional aspect to the discussion, which I totally understand, but with the politicisation plus the emotional element, the detransition argument, I think, can become, it can become difficult to put in perspective because whilst it may seem like a a very, very unfortunate or or in in, in some ways terrible situation for someone to regret that treatment, for the other 99.5% or how many others are experiencing a positive benefit, you, you cannot deny them that opportunity. It's not humane. It's, it's not right. So again, it's complicated. There's nuance and we need to be really thoughtful in how we approach it. Yeah, no, I, I think the, uh, the hip replacement analogy, uh, obviously it's relevant in the sense that you don't deny the treatment, but what you do do is just make sure that every protocol is being taken to minimize the the number of people that, you know, die from sepsis. The surgeons scrub their hands and there's a there's a checklist. And I think one of the reasons people have anxiety about the detransitioning issue and, you know, fight about the rates of it is because the process by which someone is trans person is it's decided whether they can get hormone therapy is not doesn't feel transparent. People don't know really what goes on. They they worry that in the worst case, you know, some rogue non-expert at school is brainwashing your kid and after one meeting they're getting hormone therapy and it, they haven't, it's like the opposite of the extremely responsible, ethical, holistic approach that you've painted out and that you're doing. It's people worry that in some places that's happening. Now, I don't know to, to what extent that is true, but that could be a, a, a totally false caricature it could be there probably are some horror stories as there always are. But in general, what, what I would just say is like the, the holistic nature of, of what you're doing at this clinic, so crucial and important. 
And, you know, the fact that you're having consultations and dealing with all aspects, just having conversations, and it's not just, uh, I think that's a crucial takeaway for, for people that are curious about what's going on in this space and what should be going on and, and what should be the standard for the world as, as we in the 21st century come into this, what is a relatively new issue for the mainstream to be discussing is like, what, what is, what are best practices? What is standard of care? You know, it has to be this whole holistic, you know, dealing with a full person, not just, not just medical one size fits all solutions. And, um, I think you, you, you know, the, the work you're doing is a, is a beautiful shining example of that. Thank you, Coleman. Coleman, I don't know if you're aware of, um, of our Australian standards of care and how they came about. But it links in with our discussion about the involvement of the court from 2004 and when we were doing the advocacy to change the system to allow better access for trans youth to get hormone treatment. One of the questions that kept coming up when we were discussing this with the politicians as well as those who work within the court, the judges that we met with and and the lawyers, was that if the court doesn't have oversight into the care that's provided, if the court's not a form of governance that care is being provided in a holistic way, then what will the governance be? And it was in response to those questions that my team and I felt that what was out there internationally in terms of standards of care didn't fit with what we needed in Australia. There are international guidelines that have been written by the World Professional Association for Trans Health, for example, they are coming out with a new version. But when we were in the midst of this advocacy between uh, about 2013 and 2017, those guidelines were essentially out of date with regards to our Australian system. So we decided to write our own standards of care and it was quite a process. My team led it but we involve clinicians from across Australia, which is, um, has a number of specialist paediatric gender services. We involve clinicians from New Zealand, part of our region, and looked at the research and, and developed with, in, in collaboration, and, and when I mean with, I mean side by side with trans young people and their parents, we designed and wrote these guidelines, which are called the Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines. And we had them published in the Medical Journal of Australia and they were undertaken for the reason of providing clinical governance and to set the standard for the country to allow the court to step back from the mechanism of ensuring good care. But what ended up happening is the Lancet actually contacted me two weeks after we'd had this published and said, we've looked at your standards of care and we think that I actually used the term on, on, on email. They said, we think they're gold standard. And I have to tell you, I nearly fell off my chair because like I thought this is the pinnacle of my career. I'm never going to get an email from the Lancet again. that <laughs> <laughs> has been unsolicited. Um, but uh, a couple of weeks later, they wrote an editorial. So they did their homework as the Lancet you would expect from the Lancet. And they wrote this beautiful editorial about gender-affirming care and the, the need for holistic multidisciplinary input to provide best outcome, but also took some of the uniqueness of our standards of care at the time around the collaboration with the trans community to make sure that we really were meeting the needs of those that we care for the most um, and that we're at the forefront of change because I think as cisgender clinicians like myself, 
um, unless you are integral to that community, unless you are working so strongly with that community, it's very easy to lose touch with what's important um, to them. And, and things are changing in a way that can be hard for people to cut, to keep up with if you're not really much, uh, really um, kind of ingrained with what's happening on the ground. So we started this this work and this collaborative work and we've 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 uh, extended this collaboration with the community into our research uh, into our clinical practices we've involved them in our in our policy making and in our um, latest proposal to government I mentioned at the very beginning that the Victorian government has um, just announced 21 million dollars of of funding for trans young people in our state um, in American dollars, it's not quite 21 million, but can't do that quick calculation in my head. It's probably about 17 million US dollars investment. And that investment has come through this proposal, which involves trans children, parents, and services that work in collaboration with us outside of the tertiary hospital system. So it's, it's a whole of community approach as well as a multidisciplinary approach. And I think it works beautifully. I'm very proud of it, actually. Yeah, as you should be. I really. I hope every trans kid in the world has access to an institution <laughs> like this where they can just go and say, Yeah, waiting this might be a disaster if yeah. that's the case, Coleman. But uh, yeah. thanks very much. I appreciate yeah. the endorsement. So before I let you go, is there any website you can direct people to to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So the Royal Children's Hospital has a gender service website and it has links to all the organisations that we work with as well as the Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines. So if you Google RCH Gender Service, it comes up number one. And there's a lovely video there which um, has the trans kids talking about their experience of our service. And um, I think the voices of trans young people are the most important when understanding their experience. So I'd encourage people to check out the website and uh, see what you think. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Michelle. Thanks, Coleman. It's been a pleasure. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.